Obviously, this song talks about a future time where every knee will bow. Well, Lord, we want our knees to bow to you right now, giving you all of our praise and glory and adoration that we can possibly give you, Lord. And we know that um, that praise comes from the Holy Spirit within us, giving that praise back to you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be led by the Spirit today, that the Spirit of God would be powerful within us as we study your word, as we give you praise, as we pray. Uh, everything that we attempt today, Lord, it has to be done through your power. And if that's the case, then it will be pleasing to you. And we pray that would be the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, uh-oh. I was supposed to have a little card here, but I don't have it. But you, you know what I'm talking about, the connection card. So if, um, if you would fill that out, please please do that. We, we especially love for you to fill it out if you're a first or second time guest. We'd love to know you're here, uh, be able to reach out to you, minister to you in any way, answer any questions, whatever the case. And so please uh, fill that out and put that in the offering plate as you leave today. All right. The rest of us, it's a great opportunity to, to put in a prayer request or so forth like that. And uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> this fella has a birthday today. Lead yourself in happy birthday. Ready? Here we go. Everybody sing. Thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Uh, Hey, as we continue to worship, there's a great Isaac Watts hymn. Let's sing it together. I sing the mighty power of God. I sing the mighty power.
this year, uh, Life Matters Worldwide, a, a pro-life organization, there are many of them, uh, but this one chose to use that last phrase, that song, that Isaac Watts song that we just uh, sang, that everywhere that we can be, thou God art present there. And if we can certainly imagine God with us in outer space, easy, right? We can imagine God with us at the depths of the sea, easy. We have to know that he's also in the womb. Amen? Sanctity of human life. And I, I just love the fact that they took this old hymn and reminded us of that. So just a little history. Um, January 13th, 1984, Ronald, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation uh, uh, design, uh, uh, designating uh, January 22nd as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Now, this was approximately 11 years after, you know what, right? The Supreme Court ruled that abortion on demand would be legal in all 50 states. Well, so this, this week, and some, some churches do it next week, but it's just sort of pick. But um, around the world, uh, churches choose a day in January to uh, recognize the sanctity of human life. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you that we as believers uh, can look to you and, and, and see how precious life is. You ordain every breath, every heartbeat. Uh, and, and Lord, we just, uh, whether it's a baby in the womb or whether it's a, a, an elder adult drawing their last breath, you give, you give all of life. And all of life, again, borrowing from this hymn, every, every, every one of us here is, is borrowing life from you, as Isaac Watts said. We borrow that life. It's not our life. It's yours that you gave us. And so, Lord, we pray uh, for all the unborn uh, today, Lord, that, uh, again, that this, uh, the laws in this land could turn and uh, could be more of a pro-life atmosphere than in the, in the last many, many years. Uh, Lord, guide our, our elected officials and our uh, justices, and, uh, Lord, we put it all in your hands, and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we chose a choir song to do, a choir, a choir and uh, orchestra song, and I really didn't even expect it to have any connection to sanctity of human life. And then all of a sudden I realized, what, what are the words we're singing? Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? And uh, so I think you know this song. If you let's stand and it's sort of a I'll I'll do the one part and then you do the response uh, to the song, okay? And let's just sing it together.
Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is he worth? 
None above him, none before him. He is the sovereign God. Amen. The Ancient of Days. Let's sing it out. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one King reigning over all. So I will not fear, for His truth remains that my God Oh, yeah. 
I begin this morning with a question. What is it that qualifies me or you to be a member of this particular body? What is it that qualifies me or you to be a member of this body? And the answer is the same as qualifies you for entrance into heaven. Right? Because our confession is a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who is both Savior and Lord. Now, you could say, well, that's kind of a radical statement in our day to put any kind of demand on anyone to tell them they can't be a member unless they do something particularly like a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Well, I want to remind you that even contemporary sociologists have figured out something true in the life of the church, and that's this. If you dumb down any of the major uh, belonging aspects of what it means to be a Christian and be a member of the church, that body does not grow, it shrinks. Why is that the case? Because the confession of the Lord Jesus Christ is that vitally important, who he is. And so think of that for a moment as we continue through this particular text of Scripture. We've been expounding on truth that undergirds the unity that we share here in this body together. Remember the first few verses of chapter 4 have to do with relational aspects. But when you get to verse 4, he begins to show us regarding one body and one spirit. There are seven ones but we've learned that you can actually see this as a Trinitarian expression of the unity that we enjoy through the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father. Again, Paul describes the call to unity this way. The Bible says, Bearing with one another in love, verse 3, Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he begins to tell us what that looks like. And if you remember last week, we dealt with the one body, the one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So, Paul, to Paul, Christian unity was rooted and grounded and founded upon truth. So unity that is not founded upon truth is not real spiritual unity at all. So last week we talked about the Spirit of God and those affirmations connected to the Spirit, meaning body and the one hope that belongs to your call. This week, we get to talk about the one Lord. I'm excited about that, aren't you? Because the Bible says to us, listen to the Scripture, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So last week we dealt with that part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God and what that looks like. And look at this. The point today is the Lord Jesus ministers in unity in the body. Now, is there any doubt who the one Lord is here? If we're going to say that this is Trinitarian, which I believe it is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the text says one Lord. So is there any doubt who the one Lord is here? 
Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. It says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through him we exist. You hear that? The one Lord? The Greek word that Paul chose to use is the word kurios. It is the word Lord, right? It is Paul's most favorite designation of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. How many times do you read Paul and he'll say, Christ the Lord, or he will say, the Lord Jesus, or he will say, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he does this all the way out through his teachings. So, we know that when it comes to the names of God, which is what? A designation of God. When we start thinking of names, they're designations to explain who God is. We realize that at least two things are conveyed when we use a name like Lord. Okay? First, who is He? Who He is, in other words, is one aspect of calling Him Lord. We have to ask who He is. But the second is what He actually does. Who He is, what He does. Is there another way for us to think about this? Well, yes, when Paul would use that term Lord, he is conveying two specific realities regarding the Son of God. Who he is has to do with his person. What he does has to do with his work. So anytime the word or or title is used, it has to do with a designation regarding who he is, his person, and what he does, his work. So here's the question. What can we say about kurios, or Lord, in relationship to who Christ is? Who is he? Why would Paul use this designation, Lord? Look, folks, it says one Lord. We need to think about who he is and what he does. We need to think about his person and his work. The term kurios is the term used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament most consistently when they came to the name of God, his divine name, which is what? Anybody know the divine name of God? Yahweh, right? So when the, when the Old Testament was being translated into the Greek 2nd and 3rd century B.C., folks, this is a long time ago, when they would come to the name Yahweh, 95% of the time they would translate that particular name as Lord. So God's covenant name, when he revealed himself to Moses in the book of Exodus, is actually just four Hebrew letters. It is known as a tetragrammaton. And those four letters convey the divine name of God as God has given himself and his name to Moses. So in a very real sense, every other name for God is a title. The real name of God is Yahweh. So Elohim, Adonai, and anything that you've ever studied, Jehovah Rapha or Jehovah, uh, whatever you put before it, Yahweh uh, said new, whatever that may be, is a designation. But the real name of our God is Yahweh. So when the rabbis, again, around the 2nd to 3rd century, would translate into Hebrew, or out of Hebrew into the Greek, and they came to that name, God, or Yahweh, 95% of the time, it was translated Lord. Now think about this. So when Paul calls Jesus Lord, he is saying that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is saying he is the God of the Old Testament. That's how clear Paul is 
getting with us when he says he is Lord. One Lord. Now, are there some confessionals in the New Testament that we should think about? Some confessions regarding who Jesus is when Paul will use the terminology Lord. Well, how about Romans 10? Look with me there. This should be very familiar with you if you've ever heard the Roman roads or the Roman road. Maybe it was presented to you when you came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. But listen to Romans chapter 10 verse 8. These are some confessions that Paul is going to use to emphasize who he is, Lord. Notice verse 8. But what does he say? The word is near. But what does he say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There it is, confession. That is the content of every presentation that Peter and Paul will use throughout the New Testament. That you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, this is an affirmation from Paul regarding when we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the one Lord that is focused upon in our text in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. Jesus affirmed that he is Lord even in his own life and ministry. I think the greatest example of this affirmation that he is Lord, is in John chapter 8. Remember, the Pharisees are pressing him regarding who he is, and Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He uses a pronoun, I, ego, and he uses a verb of being, a me, and what he's doing is conveying exactly what you hear in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when the Lord God, Almighty Yahweh, appeared to Moses and said, I am who I am. So Jesus claims that he is the God who appeared to Moses. He revealed himself as the great I am. And how do the Jews respond in John chapter 8 verse 59? Ah, he's a lunatic. We don't believe what he has to say. No, what do they do? They pick up stones and they seek to kill him. Why? For blasphemy. Because he is saying that he actually is the great I am. So Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Asus Curios, Jesus is Lord, you are just affirming what Jesus already said. In, Luke, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, as a result of Jesus' exaltation, he has been given an exalted name. Y'all know this text? And at the sound of Jesus' name, every knee will bow and every tongue will Confess, a common confession that Jesus Christ is curious, Lord. So, people began to recognize by the Spirit and Word working in their life that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. That's how this takes place. The agency of the Spirit of God and the, and the Word of God working in us. He is Yahweh, the King, the Savior. And then we bow the knee. So, wherever the gospel goes and wherever the gospel spreads... There is a confession of faith throughout the world in more languages than you and I even know exist. That, and they proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who he is. And there's coming a day when every tongue will confess, whether they believe or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the great confession. Jesus Christ is 
God. This is the great confession. He is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is God. We certainly could add more to this list of confessions. Uh, here's one that I like, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You remember a time when Thomas skipped church. Think with me. Can you remember the time when Thomas missed church? The others were there and Jesus manifested himself before them. And they saw him after his resurrection alive from the dead. And what does Thomas say when they tell him that Jesus Christ showed up bodily in the flesh? I will not believe it unless I take my finger and stick it in the hole of his hand. And unless I take my hand and put it inside of his side. Thus we remember him as doubting Thomas. But the next time Jesus appeared, Thomas was in church. He was there, right? You miss things when you're not in church. So Thomas, his confession, right? Think about his confession. You are my curios, my Lord, and my God. I think we should call him believing Thomas because he gives one of the most incredible confessions found anywhere in Scripture. He doesn't stutter. There's no mistaking what he has to say. Mark this and mark it well. When Paul says one Lord, he is referring to Jesus Christ, the Almighty, the God man. Period. One Lord. What about the work of Christ? Well, I think Paul uses the term curios to convey something of Christ's work as Messiah as given to us in Jeremiah 23. Verses 5 and 6. There's this massive messianic prophecy that God will raise up a branch from David. And what is his name? It calls him Yahweh Sidnu. In other words, he's the God of righteousness. Which, by the way, is what you have to have in order to go to heaven. The righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, when we consider the person, he is God Almighty. When you consider his work, it's the work of righteousness. So Paul will use this consistent title, Lord, in connection with the work of Christ. Let's do do a little gospel summary of the work of Christ. Y'all ready for it? How does the Bible bring together Lord with his work? How about he's the Lord Jesus who died for us? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord's death. That's what we do at the Lord's Supper. By the way, commercial break tonight. We partake of the Lord's Supper here at 6 o'clock, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 2, 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul makes this connection as Jesus Christ is Lord and he's coming to die. And then he dies for his people. 1 Corinthians 15 would remind us of first importance, that Jesus Christ died. For our sins. So get this in your mind. The work of Christ. He died for us. Here's the second thing. He is also the Lord who was raised for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14. God raised up the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. So the Lord has this connotation of the one who came and died. But he's also the one that was raised up bodily from the grave. Is that all? The Bible also tells us that he's the Lord who ascended into heaven 
and has been gloriously exalted. In referring to that ascension on the Lord's day, on Pentecost, Peter could say, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified, Acts 2.36. As a result of his exaltation, he is Lord. It is also the Lord who is the object of our faith. He died for us. He's Lord. He was raised for us. He's Lord. He was exalted into heaven for us in his ascension. He is Lord. But he's also the object of our faith. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's the object of our confession. Whoever believes in him, Romans 10, will not be put to shame. He's the Lord, right? Whoever calls upon the Lord will be saved. This is the one Lord that died for us, was raised for us, was ascended and exalted for us, is the Lord who is the object of our faith. And then Paul uses Lord in the sense of Jesus as our divine king. In other words, folks, he's the object of our obedience. And we willingly submit to him. Let me show you Romans chapter 14. Here's how Paul describes it. If you're happy just listening and not turning, go ahead. But it's really good for you to keep your finger on the verse. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 4. Listen to the word. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Can I get an amen? amen. It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So there's this relationship between a servant and his master. It's the Lord Jesus. Now, let your eyes fall to verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You know what this means? He's the object of all my submission. He's the object of all my obedience. Is that all that we can say about his work? No, folks. The Bible also tells us he's the Lord and he's coming in power and glory. He's coming again. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. That's the Lord that we serve. He's going to command and the dead in Christ will rise. So when Paul says one Lord, don't think he's just saying like the woman at the well, well, sir, we know that you worship on this mountain. No, that's what, that was her. There is a time in Scripture when Lord actually means sir. That's not what Paul is saying. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, he is saying that he is Yahweh. Jesus is God. He came and died for us. He was raised. He ascended. He will come again. He is the object of our faith. He is our king. And we are his servants. And we gladly bow the knee and submit to this Lord, our God. So, when we come to him in faith, we come to him as Christ the Lord. We come to him who is the creator and redeemer. We come to him who is the one who is the only one who can save, the only one who paid the penalty for our sins. We come to him as the Christ, the only one that could offer that sacrifice for our sin. We come to him as the trumpet, as the one who triumphed over life and death. He's the king of kings, 
And he is the Lord of lords. He's the one Lord of our salvation. And he's the one God who rules supremely over this world. This is not, it's not biblical to say that you can come to Christ as Savior but not Lord. That's not, that's not biblical at all. It does not mean that when you come to faith in Christ you understand all the aspects of his lordship over you, yet the person who comes to Jesus with genuine saving faith will be the person who not only trusts in him for the forgiveness of sins, they will be people who bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. They will serve him. Now folks, I can't stress this enough in the day that we live and in our church age. We just assume that everybody's regenerate just because they walk in the back of the church. That is not so. Unless your whole soul faith commitment to Christ issues forth into a life of obedience and a desire to serve Christ, you are not saved. It's going to happen. Why? Because the greatest teacher in all the world lives inside of you. And it's the Holy Spirit of God. We have one body. We have one spirit. Right? So there ought to be this desire within you to live if, the, if you belong to the one Lord there should be a desire in you as a servant to obey the one that you belong to. So we have one Lord. He also says we have one faith. What is the apostle referring to? Well, I think he has the objective faith in mind. In other words, that is to say faith is focused on the object or the objective content which is to be believed by us. In other words, if there's only one Lord, then there's only one true faith. There's only one true body. There's only one true body of truth. This means that not every faith is as good as any other faith. Right? Our society is plagued with the notion, and I wouldn't just say our society. I think it's in some way it's always been that way. But they're plagued with this notion that every faith is just as good as any other faith. Now, that's obviously not true unless you remove truth, accuracy, and reliability. Our society, again, is plagued by everyone's faith is as good as anyone else's. Nobody can be wrong in our day. There are many faiths and many roads that lead to God is what the world will tell you. Just take your pick, right? Just, just use your own personal preference and take your road, folks. The Bible says... No, there's one faith. You hear how important this is for the ministry of unity in the body of Christ? One Lord, but also not many roads that lead to heaven, not parallel roads, only one faith. This faith is primarily about the body of truth concerning who? The Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So Paul will say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.3 that if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and his teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. In writing to Timothy, in writing to Titus, he will say, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, this is the body of truth believed by God's elect. This is the body of truth believed by God's people throughout the ages. Jude will speak of a faith that was given 
delivered unto the saints which we are to stand for. Jude chapter 3. So it is a body of doctrine and is called faith. It is handed down from generation to generation. It has been preached faithfully by preachers years and years and years and years. And it's the gospel itself. This is one faith that is not based upon opinions. It's not based upon speculations. This one faith is based upon what the word of God says. And uh, I don't have to tell you, we live in a subjectivistic, relativistic age where everybody wants to think that their speculation or their notion or their idea is what determines truth. But personal opinion is not determinative for truth. On the authority of God's written word, the gospel is the truth, period. The gospel, one faith. If there's one Lord, then there's one faith. This faith also has a subjective element to it, doesn't it? Now think about this for a moment. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what you think about God. What matters is what God has said about God. Every single person must come to the faith. How? By faith. And they're coming to the same faith. And they're coming to the same way. Here's what Peter would say. To those who have received a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, don't you realize the same faith that Peter has is the same faith you have? It is. Think of this. It's the same gift. It's the same act of whole-souled commitment and reliance on the person and work of Jesus Christ and embracing Jesus Christ and his truth. Now, we don't all have the same story of how we came to embrace the faith. Yet faith, at the end of the day, ends up being the gift of God, wherein you embrace Christ and you rely completely on God as revealed in the Word of God. That's what it means. The passage says, one Lord, one faith, one, if I may say, immersion. One Lord, one faith. The text says, one baptism. Do you all know what the word baptism means? It means to immerse. It means to dip. As a matter of fact, some grammatical studies show that when the passive voice is used, it actually means to sink it or drown it. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It's hard to sink a ship by sprinkling on it. Right? When you consider what that means in the passive voice to submerge under. Right? So... The idea is to submerge. Of course, let's think about it. When you read that word baptism, it has a spiritual and a symbolic reality. And this is important for us theologically. In the New Testament, baptism, let's call it the watery rite. R-I-T-E. It symbolizes our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that baptism is repeatedly used to symbolize what takes place in the spiritual reality of what we know as unity with Christ. Remember that verse from last week, 1 Corinthians 12, 13? We're all baptized into one body. So what is symbolized in the act of baptism is what happens when the Spirit of God puts you into the body of Christ. Do you see the connection? Uh, of why Paul would say eagerly, uh, seek the unity of the body. Why? One Lord, one faith, one immersion into the very body of Christ. Romans 6 will say it this way. 
Therefore we were baptized into Christ's death. He's talking about spiritual union that takes place when Jesus, with Christ when he's using that term baptism. Listen to Galatians 3.27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on. Another translation. You've been clothed in Christ. Hear this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, the ceremonial rite of baptism is indeed a symbol. There's nothing supernatural or powerful in the water itself. It symbolizes the glorious union with Christ in those who believe. So folks, think about this. When we read baptism, however, you should not only jump to the conclusion that it does mean union with Christ. Don't do that at the expense of the symbol. Because that happens sometimes in church life. We just think, well... I'm in Christ. I've made my profession of faith. Why do I need to be baptized? Well, because Paul puts this together. He's putting together the reality and also the symbol. So what we should remember is that the reality and the symbol are meant to be taken together. So it's my belief that Paul is referring here when he says one baptism. He's talking about the ordinance of water baptism which symbolizes the reality that we have been brought into the body of Christ and united in Christ Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. Now, what is baptism? What is baptism? I, I know just this week I, I heard back to me that a church member was struggling with baptism. Was I baptized before I was saved? And we like to say this in the South, you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. Because the water we write in and of itself does not save you. Right? So we have to stop and ask ourselves, what is baptism? Well, first, it is a visible expression of our faith. Write that down. I didn't put that in the notes, but you should put that under baptism. Right? It is a visible expression of our faith. What do we see in the book of Acts? We preach through Acts for, I don't know, what, two years what do we see in the book of Acts? Well, we see this marvelous pattern that is incredibly consistent. They believed, repented, or received the word, and then they were baptized. A profession of faith is joined together in the book of Acts, which is simply built upon the great commission that Jesus Christ gave us, and one aspect of that commission is to baptize those. Jesus doesn't give clarification there, so we have to understand that baptism has to go somewhere in there with conversion, right? That act when you trust Christ and therefore the expression of that conversion experience is that you will be water baptized. Now I want to remind you of something. In the New Testament, baptism wasn't given as an altar call. Baptism was actually the expression of faith that you have trusted Jesus Christ. Do I like invitations and altar calls? You better believe it. I don't know if I've ever done a service here that I didn't give an altar call. Why do I do that? Because they do it in the scripture, right? Uh, so, but here's the deal. The rite of baptism was where they publicly actually expressed their faith in the New Testament. We've moved a long way from that, right? We think a public expression is to walk an aisle. No, the public expression is when you go through baptismal waters. That is now, is it part of going public and sharing your faith? Well, absolutely. But in the, in the New Testament, here's what F.F. F. Bruce said. The idea of an unbaptized Christian in the New Testament is simply not entertained. That, that's an oxymoron. You didn't have a Christian who wasn't baptized. 
Are y'all getting this? Are you? Listen, uh, again, the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. My favorite story about conversion and baptism has to be the Ethiopian eunuch. Don't y'all love that story? In Acts chapter 8, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. It's moving in that direction. And Philip is a deacon at first, but then becomes an evangelist. That's a deacon. Hallelujah. Do we need some of those? Well, we're going to be planning some things coming up this coming week on Tuesday as a staff. And one thing we're going to bring back is knocking on doors. We've become lazy. We've become very lazy. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a Sunday night, Lord willing, a month. And we're going to go out and visit prospects. We're going to put people's mouths where they should be. In the witnessing field. And we're going to do this. Why? Because Philip didn't mind jumping on a chariot. And taking the scroll of Isaiah. And explaining to the Ethiopian eunuch who Jesus Christ is. And that's exactly what takes place in this. He gets up on the chariot, and he's reading a scroll of Isaiah. Remember what he says? How can I know what this says unless someone helps me? And that's exactly what Peter does. He, the Bible says he preached Jesus to him. Now, something had to happen by way of conversation as they were going down the road in that chariot. Don't you all believe that? After, after he gives them the gospel. Why would that Ethiopian eunuch say, There is water. Are y'all awake? Wake up. Wake up. There is water. What prevents me from getting baptized? Isn't that good stuff? I mean, you're talking about a preacher shouting. Somebody comes down the aisle and I've just trusted Christ as my Lord. What prevents me from being baptized right now? Right? So something had to take place in that conversation about your expression of faith. Do y'all think Philip made it clear to that Ethiopian eunuch, if you have trusted Christ, you will be baptized? Did he? Absolutely. Philip commands the chariot to stop. (laughs) He doesn't say, look, there's a canteen. Maybe I can be sprinkled. No, that's not what he says. There is water. And the Bible says they go down into the water and they come back up together. Can I make a confession to you? Of something I don't like here. I don't like standing outside of the water in the baptismal pool. That, that's just my preference. I like to go down in the water. I like to have my hands on the person buried with Christ. And, to, and I don't mind if a little water gets on me. I like it. Now look. I'm not saying that we're going to change that. There, there are some pros and cons. And this is just one of my preferences. We, we call it distinctions. And in this particular matter, I like to go down in the water. I don't mind putting waders on. And if we ever do something up here different, I'm going to make myself go down in the water. I am because I like what the scripture says. Now, does this in concrete? No, I'm not saying that. I just like it. Imagine saying I'm going to be baptized in the Jordan River. You're just walking there by yourself. You can dunk yourself that way. Anyway, okay, here we go. Faith and expression of faith. Baptism. Second, baptism symbolizes death to the old life and new life with Christ. Please underscore this. It's not only a public expression of your faith. It symbolizes death to the old life 
and new life with Christ. Paul puts it like this in Romans 6. You are baptized into Christ's death and you are raised with him in newness of life. That's why your pastor says we are buried with him through baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. That's why we say this thing. The very same imagery is used in Colossians 2 verses 12 through 13. Listen, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Hallelujah, folks. Can you remember the day when God worked so powerfully in your life by grace through faith that he made you alive? Made you alive. Listen to the words. Powerful, working. No one ever gets saved apart from the powerful, working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is not only this visible expression of faith. You are saying in that rite of baptism, I believe Jesus is Lord. He's my Savior. He's my King. I've embraced him by faith. And here I stand committed to Jesus Christ as a follower. Why? Because of God's grace. I am his and he is mine. His people are my people. This is what we're saying when we go down into the water. But it's also saying that you have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death. And when you're brought out of that water, it's a symbol that God has given you new life. Hallelujah. So the picture is unmistakable. The picture is glorious. Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in newness of life. It symbolizes your union in his burial, in his death, and his resurrection. Now we know enough from early church data and archaeology to know how this procedure went when they actually baptized someone in the early church. Did you know that? We can figure that out. Did you know that baptismals were built kind of like a big hot tub. And there was steps that went in on this side and steps that went out on the other side. You know what archaeological history tells us? It tells us that a deacon actually stood on the other side of the pool. And they would enter this hot tub-like structure on one side. And as the person went in, they went in with their old clothes on. And they went under the water. And as they were immersed and they came straightway out of the water on the other side. And a deacon would take a white robe and put it on the newly baptized convert. Can y'all say it for me? Hallelujah! Right? The old is gone and the new has come. What a glorious picture. Makes me want to be baptized all over again. Think about it. And there's one more. Not only is baptism a visible expression... Of our faith, it is death to old life, new life in Christ. But it also symbolizes our identification with Christ's body. We are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Thus the connection in this text with one body. Are you seeing it? Jesus actually ministers this unity to our church body. Why? Because there's only one Lord. There's only one faith. And there's only one baptism. So when you are baptized, you are saying, I am associating myself with this group of Christians, this ecclesia. So baptism is the public expression, symbolizes old life to new life, but it also is identification with the people of God. Now stop and consider this, right? Paul is is building a theological foundation of unity, and he unfolds this glorious reality of of that that we are one because of one Lord Jesus Christ. One faith and one same body of Christian truth that is passed down, right? 
one same act of faith and believing. And we all enter in union symbolically with our Lord through faith in baptism. We're brought together as people. These are awesome realities, folks. These are awesome realities. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, these are great truths. And they're wonderful. But here's the deal. They have to be personal truths. They have to be personal realities. Some of you may can argue baptism up one side and down the other. You may be able to engage the most rabid postmodern person who has ever lived about all faiths and the fact that they're not all true. You may be able to articulate with theological precision the person and work of Jesus Christ. But my friends, if you do not own these truths as your own, if these truths are not in you and have changed you, if these realities have not shaped the very fiber and direction of your life, you're not saved. It's not enough to make a confessional and say there's only one Lord. You have to be able to say, as Paul did, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Are y'all getting this? Can you say this morning, he is my Lord? Listen to how Paul puts that personal pronoun in front of Lord. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Here it is, my Lord. Philippians 3, verse 8. If you can't say he's my Lord... Folks, there's no way based upon Scripture that we can say you're saved if he's not your Lord. These truths must be part of who you are. There's one Lord, but it also says there's only one faith. The Christian faith, is it your faith? Think about this. Can you say this morning, my faith, it is my faith, and I embrace it with everything that I am. Now, will you say this is the hill which I'm going to stand on? And if need be, this is the hill I'm going to die on. Can you say that this morning? Young people, is it your faith? Not your dad's faith. Not your mom's faith. Not your grandmother's faith. Not your granddad's faith. You're not going to get to heaven just because your mom and dad believe. No amens? You're not going to get to heaven just because someone else in your family believes. Can you say, I embrace with a whole-souled commitment, I embrace the living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Can you say I embrace the truth of the Word of God with all that I am? Can you say that? Have you expressed it and professed that faith through baptism? In other words, have you owned these truths? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Do you own these truths as your own? Is the wolf and warp of your life and all these wonderful truths and reality, has it changed the direction of your life? If any man be in Christ, he is a, say it, new creature. That's it. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, what a blessing it is to, to study and to look at one body, one spirit. One calling, that is our hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one immersion that shows two realities. One reality, one symbol. Reality is if we know Jesus, we have been infused into his family. We're in union 
with Jesus Christ. But we're also in union with each other, this body. Lord, help us, Father, to think about the truth of your word. Lord, help the individual sitting here today thinking, well, I can make that confession, I'm fine. No, do we own you as our king? Have, have, has there been a whole-souled commitment from our perspective with all that we have put into the valley of decision to put our trust only in Jesus? The Christian faith that is given in the word of God, the body of truth revealed to us. Father, if someone is lost today, would you save them? Only you can change hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing this together. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily. He stopped, perfect timing. Newest members of our church, right here. Come back down here, Jim, all right? Uh, this couple's been a blessing to my soul. They come by transfer of letter to, from a sister uh, SBC church, and uh, they've taken the new members class, and they've checked all of you out. I've seen their journaling and me, and here they are today to let you know that they want to be a part of this body, amen? So we welcome them to our church family. Jim and Pam Bowen, get to know them, all right? God bless you. All right. Tonight, uh, we will take part in the Lord's Supper. And also, Dr. Kevin Patterson up there, uh, he's going to share some really good mission. uh, How can we say this? We're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth in unique ways by students at SBU in a program they have. You'll want to hear that, okay? And after that, we're going to celebrate the seven ones. And we're going to do so in the Lord's Supper. Amen. So I hope you'll come back tonight. God bless each one of you. Let's sing together. Our God is a lion. Our God is a lion. The lion.